It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 266 for October 30th, 2011, the day before Halloween. Recorded October 28th. Oh, my dear Watson, Adobe's Photoshop Elements is just what you need for your photos. At least, I think it is. I'm actually a bit confused because Adobe Photoshop is the application that's designed for professionals to use for pixel editing. And Adobe Lightroom is both a great workflow organizer for professionals and a complete photo management solution for amateurs. But then again, the low-cost Photoshop Elements makes everything easy and actually includes features that aren't in Photoshop. Oh, Watson, perhaps this isn't so elementary after all. All right, enough of that. Adobe has tools that give professionals complete control and tools that simplify tasks that most people will want to use. Genius? Yeah, I think so. Consider bokeh, for example. Bokeh is a Japanese word that means blur. If you're an accomplished photographer with a high-end lens, you can create an image that has great bokeh right in the camera. The most important part of the photograph will be in sharp focus, and everything else will be blurry. Or if you don't have a high-end lens, you can achieve the same effect by adding Alien Skin's Bokeh 2 to Photoshop. Amateurs who choose Photoshop Elements won't have to buy the Alien Skin add-on. Instead, they can just instruct Photoshop Elements to blur parts of the image. Now, this capability doesn't mean that Photoshop Elements replaces Photoshop or that there is no longer a need for Alien Skin's Bokeh 2. The Alien Skin add-on provides precise controls that are absent from Photoshop Elements. But for amateurs, this may be exactly what you need. To try this out, I started with an image of a dog. Yeah, it's a, it's a dog. It's not my dog, but it was a handy picture. It's an okay snapshot, but the balloons in the background are so sharp that I keep looking at the reflections in them instead of focusing on the dog, the important part of the image. There is a fix for that in the Adobe Elements Guided Photo Editor section. The Guided Photo Editor section is just one of several editing methods that you can use in Photoshop Elements. Depth of field was what I was looking for, also known as bokeh, of course, so that's the one I selected. And then I was given two options, simple and custom. If you can draw a circle, you can use the simple method. The custom method gives you more control with very little additional effort. But for the example you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website, I decided to see what I could do with simple Adobe Elements told me to apply blur, so I clicked the button that did that, and the entire image became blurry. Oh, well, that's certainly not what I wanted. But there were instructions there. The instructions told me to draw a circle where I wanted the image to be in focus. That's easy enough. Click about at the center of the area where you want the image to be in focus and drag outward. When you get a circle that's about the size you want, stop. If you don't like the effect... Click Reset and try again. Do that as many times as you want until you get it exactly the way you want it to be. It doesn't get a lot easier than that. 
Another option that's new to Photoshop Elements is the ability to create text on a path or on a selection. Adding text to a selection is particularly intriguing because it's an entirely new concept. After selecting part of an image with any of the selection tools, including the magic wand or the quick selection tool, it is possible to align text to the outline of the selection. As with previous versions of Photoshop Elements, the quick correction capabilities are surprisingly powerful. And also, as with the previous versions of Photoshop Elements, professional photographers and designers will consider the tools less than adequate. But amateurs who want to improve their images, not make major modifications on a pixel-by-pixel -pixel basis, will find the tools both powerful and easy to use. Adobe gives users 2 gigabytes of online space for free. That's not a lot of space, but you can obtain more if you want it. A photographer who shoots raw images would be able to store perhaps 150 to 250 images in that amount of space. Those who shoot JPEG images might store 500 to 2,000 images there. When you start Photoshop Elements, you'll need to sign into your Adobe account or create one if you don't already have one, and then you'll be offered the free space. Using your images is also easy in Photoshop Elements. It involves the ability to post images to several online photo sharing sites, properly size images for email, and export images for various uses. One thing that's not immediately obvious in Photoshop Elements is the importance of non-destructive editing. The current interface makes it all too easy for people to write over existing images, which is something that should never happen. The original image should be maintained so that you can always return to your starting point. If you have purchased Adobe Photoshop Elements or you're thinking about it, you should watch Jan Kabili's program on Photoshop Elements at lynda.com. You'll find a link to that program from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Some parts of the program are free to watch. For others, you'd need a subscription to lynda.com. Jan covers all of the new features and shows just how easy it is to use Photoshop Elements to do the things you want to do. The bottom line, Photoshop Elements continues to surprise. Four cats, that's a very strong rating. For an application that you could find in stores for around $75, Photoshop Elements 10 packs an amazing amount of power. Professionals, this is not a program for you. But if you're an amateur photographer who wants to improve, use, and share your images, but can't afford Adobe Lightroom or Adobe Photoshop, or you don't want to take the time to learn how to use them, then take a look at what Photoshop Elements can do. For more information, visit the Photoshop Elements website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Most ebook readers, even the Kindle, now allow users to read library books, but there are significant differences between readers. I recently encountered a well-written, concise, but complete review of the current options, and I asked the author for permission to make it a part of TechBiter Worldwide. Richard Aiden of Freelance Editorial Services and an American Editor blog is the author. If you're thinking about buying an ebook reader, I think his comments will be useful. This is what he had to say. If you buy a Kindle, you can buy any protected books only from Amazon. You can buy non-protected e-books from anywhere, he says he particularly likes Smashwords, and either download them in Kindle format or convert them to the Kindle format using a program such as Calibra. If you can remove the DRM from Amazon e-books, you can convert the e-book using Calibra. 
Alternatives to the Kindle include the Sony TR1, Nook, iPad, and Kobo. Kobo and Sony use the basic EPUB format with Adobe's ADE as a digital rights management wrapper. Any ebook purchased from Kobo or Sony eStores can be read as is on any ebook device from Sony, Kobo, Barnes & Noble, or Apple. If you buy a Nook, it can read as is ebooks purchased from any place that sells ebooks in the EPUB format except Apple. If you buy the iPad, it can read EPUB format ebooks purchased from any store. Kobo, Sony, and Amazon are the three mainstream players worldwide. Barnes and Noble and Apple ebook stores have geographical limitations. Amazon, Kobo, and Sony also have geographical limitations, but they are less restrictive because they're operating ebook stores internationally, which Apple and Barnes and Noble are not, at least not yet. It's relatively easy to remove digital rights management, that protection from ebooks purchased at Barnes and Noble. However, the reality is that buying a Sony or a Kobo device gives you access to nearly all of the same books that are available at Barnes and Noble or Amazon. There are some exceptions, but not a whole lot of them. For what it's worth, says Rich Aiden, I have a four-year-old Sony 505 that I passed on to my wife about a year ago, and it works as if it were brand new. I also own and use a Sony 950 that's now one year old. It, too, continues to work as if brand new. I have been very pleased with the build quality of the Sonys and suggest you consider a new Sony TR1. Also, for what it's worth, Aiden says he has purchased more than 1,000 ebooks, and he put purchased in quotation marks. Explaining that, he says he put the word purchase in quotation marks because nearly 95% of the books were free from places like Smashwords, Feedbooks, Sony, Kobo, and Barnes & Noble. Not all of the freebies were readable, he warns, but probably 50-60% to 60 are. The point is that when you're considering which device to buy, you need to consider what books you intend to purchase. Amazon, Kobo, Sony, and Barnes & Noble are generally within nickels of each other. Consequently, the price is generally not a deal-maker, especially with the big six publishers setting uniform pricing and with the popularity of indie books available at Smashwords. If you're really on the fence, Aiden suggests reading Mobile Read, which is a well-established online group for e-bookers. Lots of discussions regarding various devices and other topics related to e-books are there. He says he's been a member for several years, and Mobile Read is one of the few places he checks a couple of times each day. It's also a good place, he says, to learn about new, free e-books. And that's information from Rich Aiden, and we thank him very much for allowing that to be used here on TechBiter Worldwide. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll find some links to Rich Aiden's websites, along with links for Smashwords, Calibra, Feedbooks, and Mobile Read. In addition to Rich Aiden's comments, I ran across an article in American Libraries magazine this week. It raises questions about privacy issues when you borrow a library book on your Kindle reader. As with any new technology, things change. It wasn't until maybe 15 years or so ago that I realized libraries don't keep records of who borrowed what. I guess I thought I could just call the library and say, could you tell me what books I read in 1973? And they'd be able to tell me. In some ways, that would be a very cool service. Amazon, Kindle, and by extension Overdrive, of course, need to know who you are so that they can deliver the books to your reader and then deactivate them when the lending period ends. How much information they keep and for how long is a good question. 
So I figure the next step will be development of some sort of HIPAA-like legislation, the HIPAA policies that cover health care, unless we Tea Party the government out of operation. And yes, I did just verb a political party. In short circuits, if you're an Apple fan and you're planning a trip to New York City, you'll want to be sure that you make some time for the new Apple store that'll soon be opening in Grand Central Terminal. Apple already has a showcase store on 5th Avenue at 59th Street. That store is all below ground with a large glass cube above ground. The Grand Central store will occupy space that had been used by the Metrazar restaurant, which was paying $264,000 a year for the space. Apple bought out Charlie Palmer's lease eight years early, and the Metropolitan Transit Authority, according to After Dawn News, says that Apple will pay $1.1 million per year to rent the space, which includes an adjacent balcony that was vacant. In total, the Apple store will consume 23,000 square feet of space. The buyout for Palmer's lease is reported to be $5 million, so this is one expensive Apple store. But... The location is astoundingly good because the city's east side subway lines all use Grand Central as a station, and the west side lines are connected via the Times Square shuttle. In addition, Metro North passengers traveling to and from upstate New York and Connecticut pass through Grand Central. Construction is scheduled for completion by mid-November, so the store will be open for Black Friday. Earlier this year, Amazon said its third quarter results would be weak, and it was right. Operating income was down by more than 70% from last year, and Wall Street punished the firm by pushing down its stock valuation by something like $16 billion. Amazon has always had an eye on the future. That was reflected in the financial results this time around. Instead of giving investors immediate gratification, the company used available cash to build for the future. The company currently has 52 warehouses and is planning to add 17 more. Needless to say, these cost money. And those new fire kindles, the ones that are selling for $199, well, each of those actually costs Amazon money because they're being sold for less than cost. Why? Well, that'll be clear to some folks. Get the hardware in the hands of consumers, and media sales will pick up. RCA Victor understood that in the 1950s when it all but gave away 45 RPM record players. Shaving companies still give away razors, knowing that they'll make money on the blades. And so it is with Amazon. Wall Street, though, seems not to comprehend long-term strategy like that. Miss your quarterly target by a penny per share, and your stock price will suffer horribly. A Kansas man has filed suit against Facebook asking for an injunction to stop the company from collecting information from users when they're not logged into the service. The suit also wants the company to disclose what information it has already collected. Oh, and $100 per day for violations, punitive damages, court costs, and attorney fees. The man filing the suit is John Graham, a lawyer from Leewood, Kansas. The motion asks that the suit be given class action status and specifies 150 million users of Facebook in the United States as plaintiffs. So I guess I'm part of that suit. Neither Facebook nor Graham nor Graham's attorney are willing to talk about the case, but earlier Facebook had said that this is not a security or privacy issue because Facebook does not improperly store or use any information. 
The information is used to personalize the site for users. Similar cases have been rejected by courts in the past because claiming that a cookie somehow violates wiretap laws is seen for being just as silly as it sounds. At issue is a problem with three cookies used by Facebook. They inadvertently contained some personally identifiable information according to Facebook, but they were not stored. For that reason, Facebook could not have improperly used the information, even if it had wanted to. The Kansas lawyer actually was the second attorney to get to the courthouse. A California man beat him, filed a similar suit last week. In that suit, the plaintiff claims that Facebook traced users' Internet activity even when they were not connected to Facebook. So if you want to get sued, just create a successful Internet-based company. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.